The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm so excited to have as our guest my good friend, Dr. David Prologo, who is an obesity medicine specialist and an interventional radiologist at Emory University School of Medicine. His research focuses on pain management and obesity, and he's dedicated most of his career around attrition, essentially why it's so hard to avoid losing momentum following a weight loss plan and on finding ways to keep folks on track. So, Dr. Prologo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you and I both work with a lot of patients, and we, and as well as we know a lot of family members and friends who struggle with weight loss. So this is really a huge, huge topic, and, and I'm sure it's one that's going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. But let me start by kind of going back to kind of your training and your specialty, because what a unique combination combining interventional radiology with obesity medicine. That's a pretty unique combination. How does that tie into your work, how you got interested in what you're doing? Uh, Thank you for asking. So I'm primarily an interventional radiologist and clinically practice interventional radiology here at Emory. In parallel, over the years, I've uh, trained and been certified in obesity medicine as well. And the reason for that is, as you mentioned, addressing this phenomenon of attrition. And what we mean by that is that we all are familiar with a strong and otherwise successful people that we know in our lives who embark on a weight loss attempt and last five or seven days. And I've watched my family and my friends and even some of our patients go through this cycle over and over again, only to hear from the mainstream that it was somehow their own internal flaws, weaknesses, or lack of willpower that led to these failures. In fact, though, in every other facet of our lives, yours and mine and all the other great doctors here at Emory, if a person couldn't tolerate or had difficulty with any sort of treatment, for example, chemotherapy, if we had nausea that accompanied chemotherapy that we knew was working, we would address the nausea. We wouldn't say, well, you can't tolerate the chemotherapy, so you just have to will your way through it or somehow white-knuckle it. Uh, So I'm not sure why we do that in a mainstream with diet and exercise. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that you know, the more we kind of address some of the challenges around obesity, the more I think it'll change how we approach and manage it. Um, So how did you get interested in this? It was a personal interest of mine my entire life, actually. Outside of my career, I've always been interested in dieting and exercise and fitness. But most importantly, the family members that uh, surrounded me and loved me and supported me as I grew up struggled with uh, calorie restriction and exercise programs. And so I've always believed that there's got to be a little bit more to this than uh, just willpower. And so for that reason, I would always read and learn and follow the bariatrics literature. And we live in a great time, the, the era of gastric bypass and other bariatric interventions, which have allowed us to learn as doctors and researchers the mechanisms behind the backlash that the body implements when we restrict calories. And so what I mean by that is that our survival-based signals are real and biological and not likely to be overcome with sheer willpower. 
So my fascination with that side of things led me to apply our interventional radiology skill set to attenuate some of these signals and see if it would be easier for people to tolerate a calorie restriction. And so that is the subject of our ongoing trials, uh, the interim results of which we're presenting this month at the Society of Interventional Radiology. So what you mentioned about the survival instinct, that is so powerful in changing how we view obesity. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about how the body fights attempts at weight loss? Sure. And I'll make a comparison to the interventional radiology research and, and clinical arena as well, if you don't mind. What happens when we restrict our calories or we embark on new onset exercise, our body has an entire set of responses in place that otherwise is latent. And those responses are as follows. Our body believes when it incurs a new onset of exercise that it should, to say in layman's terms, should conserve its calories, right? Better slow down all the calories that we're burning because we're going to have to use them for this new onset exercise. And so I think people are familiar with this paradoxical response to new onset exercise that's offset by slowing your metabolism. And so to say that in plain terms, if a person is sedentary or not very active and embarks on a new exercise program on day one, the body will immediately attenuate any calories that you burn by slowing its own metabolism in the name of survival. That's one of the most frustrating responses, I'm sure. But another example, and the one that we're particularly interested in here in interventional radiology, are the nerve signals that are sent to the brain in the absence of a full stomach. So again, plainly said, when the stomach is empty, the body will prioritize food-seeking behavior over everything else in the name of survival, and, and it does that by releasing neurotransmitters into the blood, as well as sending direct signals from the stomach to the brain through a nerve called the vagus nerve. There are a host of other responses, but those are two examples. You just hit on so many really interesting points because there's a perception out there that when you start an exercise program, you're exercising to speed up your metabolism. And, and what you just said is really the opposite is happening. Indeed. And not only is the, is the opposite happening, but the absolute number of calories that a, a sedentary or overweight person can burn is a drop in a bucket, right? It's if we have the capacity to walk X number of minutes, for example, we're probably going to burn about 200 calories. And over time, it will be impossible to create a calorie deficit, even if our body didn't respond in the way that we just described. And so uh, it is counterintuitive to think that your body will slow down its calorie burning at baseline and offset your attempts. Uh, and furthermore, it's important to focus on our exercise capacity. How many calories can we really burn in an attempt to affect our energy balance overall? If that's confusing, what I really mean to say is people are at baseline usually not in good enough shape to burn enough calories to affect their weight loss. So the more important part is the calories in instead of the calories out. Or could we increase our exercise capacity to a critical point, we can call that the catching point, after which our metabolism will shift back to a new baseline, a new set point, and we will have the capacity to burn enough calories to affect the overall in and out balance. I think the mistake that's made is that we embark immediately on a calorie restriction 
exercise program, we incur the slowing of our basal metabolic rate because of the exercise. We can't burn enough calories to affect it anyway. And then we go hungry because of the calorie restriction. And these all combine to result in our failure at day five, six, or seven. So let me recap for our listeners because you just put so much information into that, um, that, that what you just mentioned. So let me back up and, and just say to, for our listeners, so Dr. Prologo is really widely acclaimed for this um, catching point, um, and it's a capacity curve. How did you arrive at what's that catching point at which – your body actually starts to work with you instead of against you? So that's a great question. And of course, we always stand on the shoulders of giants, right? So all the people who have come before us and all the people who are doing research now are beginning to come to this conclusion uh, um, together, together. And for example, Dr. Kaplan, who who I'm sure you're familiar with, has a quote uh, where he says that exercise alters our food preferences toward healthy eating, right? And so it's that point at which it's not a struggle to eat clean. It's easier. And that point is a long way from where most people are starting. Um, But to answer your question, how do we arrive at 210 met minutes as the point where our body's resistance and our ability to eat are crossing? And we've come to that conclusion by adding up the number of calories one could burn over 60 days with a capacity of 210 minutes, um, which is a much larger number than you can if your exercise capacity, say, is 30 minutes. Is this making sense? Well, it's making a lot of sense. Maybe if you could, for our listeners, just say if they wanted to start an exercise program, and now we know that their metabolism is going to slow when they do it, what should they do to work their way up to 200 minutes? Like, What does that look like? How much exercise is that? What does day one look like? So that's such a great question. And the answer to that is recovery. How do they do it? The answer is recovery. So I'll come back to that. What does it look like in plain terms? Most folks have the met minute capacity to walk for 15 or 20 minutes, let's say. Of course, there's going to be a variation on either side of that. On day one, 210 minute capacity is the ability to jog lightly for 30 minutes. So if you're wondering what does it mean in plain terms, what amount of exercise must I be able to do to make these mainstream exercise diet programs easy for me, it's you need to gain the ability to jog lightly for 30 minutes. That's, that's what 210 minutes is uh, in the simplest of terms. And for someone who is starting from kind of couch potato, how long is a good time frame to work your way up to that? Right. So this is the $65 million question, and that's why I'll come back to recovery. That's going to vary for every person. And what I mean by recovery is this. Recovery is sort of the, the secret laying right in front of us that we don't use when we embark on a new exercise program. If we're going from couch potato to jogging lightly for 30 minutes, the key is going to be timing our rest in between these workouts and not so much adhering to a potential time frame, which might be, say, three months, you should be at 210 minutes by working out four times a week. I think that's, in effect, what contributes to our failure. And instead, if we would let go of the time frame, though that's a great question, but if we would let go of the time frame and focus rather on our body's recovery and our body's response to these exercise bouts, then we would be able to make progress. And what I mean by that is instead of counting on getting there in three months, 
start at whatever your capacity is now, and then eat clean and rest so that your body can change its capacity. It's only during rest and clean eating that your body will change its capacity. It doesn't happen during the workout. The workout is a breakdown. Only when your body responds and reorganizes and recovers from these workouts can any progress be made. And that recovery period is going to vary for each and every person. That is very helpful because I think that there are so many programs that have time frames around them, like the 21-day X or the, you know, from couch potato to marathon in 30 days or however these programs are structured. So it's really the individual that will ultimately change their own capacity. We're, we're focusing, you know, a lot now on this whole piece of the exercise. The other part to weight loss is the calories in. And one of the struggles, one of the other ways the body fights back, you started to mention, is how the body sends signals of hunger. What are ways to work to control the hunger signals so we're not overeating while we're trying to build up our capacity? Oh, that is such a great question. And so the answer to that is to focus on the things that will that you'll eat. And when I say focus on that, I don't mean focus on low-calorie foods. I mean focus on foods that are going to contribute to your recovery. And the plainest example I can give of that If we're at Couch Potato State and we have a few exercise bouts and we're counting on our body to reorganize in such a way that our exercise capacity will be greater next time, one of the nutrients we're going to need is protein, right? And so if we concentrate on eating protein in its cleanest forms, white meat, chicken, or fish, we will be doing the best thing we can for our body's reorganization. So we're not focusing on restricting our calories, we're focusing on intaking the right foods that will contribute to our reorganization and eventual increase of our exercise capacity. And after a while, these things will start to work together. After a while, the reorganization allows us to exercise a bit more than we could and thereby burning a little bit more calories. And the clean eating will offset our body's response to decrease and slow our metabolism. And the body will essentially get on board. Right, And that's that point when your body's on board and it's no longer fighting you because you've eaten in a way that has allowed your body to increase its exercise capacity through reorganization. Now it's easy. So the term clean is now pretty widely used. And you mentioned that you're referring to clean as chicken, fish. What are proteins that you consider clean? Like, can you talk more if someone wants to start from today to have clean protein? What are good sources? What are ways you recommend they prepare chicken or fish? Right. So a good question. Certainly we could, uh, we could, we could hurt this attempt by preparing things in the wrong way. But to answer the first part of your question, it's really uh, white meat. So chicken, pork, uh, fish, and then uh, beans, legumes, and nuts. So these are the proteins that we need. Again, the purpose of these proteins is to contribute to our body's reorganization, not to attenuate the number of calories that we're eating. And the preparation, of course, is either baked or cooked, uh, sear-fried in a pan, but not fried and um, breaded. And besides protein, are there other foods that people should be focusing on? 
folks should focus on the the so-called rainbow, the colors, the leafy vegetables. Uh, we should definitely have five to six servings of vegetables each day for multiple reasons. Again, to feed into the reorganization that we're after and also to attenuate that hunger signal that you mentioned. So if we're increasing our exercise, our body will look to eat more in the name of survival. And one of the things that we can do to offset poor choices is prioritize uh, these colors and these vegetables as our first choice. Our second choice then are proteins that feed to our reorganization, and by then, hopefully, we're full. So how do these specific foods, these clean proteins and these vegetables, kind of loop back to how our hunger hormones signal our bodies when we're hungry? Like, how do they play in so that they're attenuating this response? So as your body, when I say reorganization, I mean reorganization primarily of the muscles in your periphery, the muscles in your arms, the muscles in your legs, the large muscle groups in your body will reorganize in such a way, they'll use those proteins to reorganize in such a way that our metabolism is more efficient. And so instead of slowing our metabolism, now we're going to build a machine that does, in fact, accomplish what you mentioned earlier over a longer period of time, creating a more efficient metabolic environment. So now we've figured how to make our bodies efficient to kind of get to this catching point. Let me back up and say, what are the challenges that your patients face? Like, what is the real world like and how do pe- how can people pull this in and, and overcome those challenges? So the primary challenge, without a doubt, is the presence or application of a static program. And what I mean by that is a program that's laid out uh, over time on a calendar, for example, or over X number of days. This is the greatest obstacle to sustainability that I've seen. And how this translates into real life is like this. On day one, we embark on a new weight loss and diet program and we're excited and we're motivated and we're able to bring our uh, clean proteins and leafy vegetables to lunch. And then we're supposed to work out on day two. So day two, we work out and we're still excited. But at this point, our body doesn't have the capacity for that workout, the capacity for recovery. So we need a few days to recover from that workout and we need to to reorganize our bodies, but instead the static program is gonna call for another workout two days later that we're not ready for. And the way we describe that is sort of throwing a grenade onto a rickety bridge. And by that time we're at day six, seven and we quit. What we need instead of that static program is to introduce some dynamic responses. We need to introduce some self-awareness for the patient or for the dieter so that they know I've done this workout. My body is still in the phase of recovery. I'm not ready to go again. And that number of days is going to be different for you than it is for me. And so we have to teach, I was going to say readers, but we have to teach patients. We have to teach uh, our friends how to be self-aware, how to know what those signs are that you're not ready to restrict calories or exercise again. And that recovery is going to be dynamic, and it's going to depend on a lot of factors, including uh, all the physiology that you started with and then all the things that are present in your life. Work is stressing. Your children are sick. Your uh, other duties are unexpectedly high. If all of that happens on a day that your static program calls for a workout, 99% of people just quit, right, and start another day. But instead of quitting, could we just switch that day to an off day, stay on our program, but adjust accordingly along the way? 
if we could keep people on for six months instead of having 90% people quit and start another day, at the end of that six months, you would be so much farther along than if you quit. So it's this, uh, and this is echoed in the literature and echoed by the experts as progress instead of perfection. And I think that is such a key point for our listeners, focusing on a program that really takes into account your entire life. Like it can't be very regimented where it's the same thing every day because we're not really designed to follow a program like that. And the way our body works is we need that dynamic constantly reevaluating. I think the challenge as I'm listening to you is there's an element of self-awareness that we need to be dynamic, but at the same time, we need guidance. So how, like, what are resources through your program? How can people kind of know what their bodies need, if it's a workout day or not, um, and then kind of be coached to understanding how to be self-aware and listening to the right cues? So another great question. And the answer to that really ranges from obvious, clearly, excuse me, obvious, clearly definable factors uh, all the way down to the more subtle. And all of these can be taught to the user. So some examples of those that are on the side of the spectrum that are easily definable, easily recognizable, and easily dealt with. Probably the first one is, are you thinking about quitting, right? Because five days ago, you were very excited and you definitely wanted to lose weight and be more healthy and more active. So if five days later or 10 days later or whatever day it may be on your static program, if your mind has changed and now you're thinking about quitting, that's one of the most obvious signs that you've taken it too far. And that if you can at that point recognize that my mind has changed and back away from that program for a day or two, your motivation will come back up and you keep going. Uh, there are more objective signs. Um, soreness, for example, right? If you're still sore two days after your workout, you're probably not ready to go again or you took on more than you can handle uh, at the beginning. And then there are subtle signs all the way at the other end of the spectrum that require software or hardware to, to measure like heart rate variability. So let's take the scenario that on day one, I'm motivated, excited, but day two, my body tells me maybe this is not a good workout day. But then let's say day three, my body says, hey, sit on the sofa and have ice cream. And day four, <laughs> <laughs> I t decide it's another break day and the motivation doesn't kick back in. <laughs> um, so, again, that, another real world great question. And so how do we do that? And we've developed a, a program that you and I have not talked about uh, to address exactly this and how we do that to keep folks on track in that potential scenario is this. At the beginning, we hope that uh, healthy living will be the goal or potentially a change in exercise capacity or even weight loss, I suppose, on the scale. But if we're talking about that, we'd rather give people a number of points uh, at which they can, or for which they can aspire. Okay, and so each time they exchange one of these days, a workout day or a clean eating day, then we gain a little bit of points and we keep ourselves on track that way. So in your scenario, um, if we remember that we're after that point total, that hundred points, which is separate from weight loss and healthy living, uh, hopefully we'll recognize that on day four, five, six, we're not getting any points. So we would have to find, we do have to objectify your progress in some way. So now, 
you're it look like you're in good shape. For our listeners who can't see you, you, you look like you do a good job keeping up with um, a good routine. What does your routine look like? What do you do? So for me, I live by these principles. And uh, the reason for that is twofold. The first one is during my training and during several moves in my life, I got far away from uh, exercise and, and healthy eating, which were such a big part of my life. And in fact, that experience was a big inspiration for what we're doing today because what I realized when that happened was, oh my gosh, it is so hard to cross back over, right? If you're already in it, like a lot of the folks who write the diet and exercise books or diet and exercise programs, if you're already in it, it's really not that hard, right? But once you fall out, to cross back over is a whole new set of rules, right? So I realized when I had a little more time and, you know, five, six, seven years had passed and I wanted to get back into shape and get back to my goal weight, as so many people would say, I thought this is going to be easy. I know how to work out. I used to be in great shape. I know how to eat clean. This will be a piece of cake. But when I started it, it was almost like getting hit in the head with a two by four. There were all these new feelings that I had never had before and I came to the realization that this is what all these people feel like, right? It's easy if you're in it, but getting back across is almost impossible. And I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent. I forgot what your question was. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Oh, oh, what do I do now? What do I do now? Right. Okay, okay. So what do I do now? So first of all, I spent years trying to figure out how in the world I'm going to get back. And I would, I would travel a lot, right, for my job. So I would go to the airport, and that's really where you can find these books, 90 days to 90 pounds, and, you know, become a marathoner by the time you get back from the trip, things like that. So I would buy those because they're so appealing to us as human beings to be told if you just do X, here's what you need to do, X, Y, Z, boom, you're done. And I would pick these up, and I'd read them on the plane, and I'd start to do them, and I'd have this experience that we just talked about. I'd get to day four or five and forget why I even started all this. And this was all a brand-new experience for me. I never knew that any of these feelings existed. And so from there, uh, I realized that there's a huge expanse between what I call the fitness haves and have-nots. And it's oftentimes the fitness haves who are giving us the direction on how to lose weight. Those directions are valid for how to maintain our physique or how to maintain our healthy living status, but it is a totally different project to cross back over from sedentary slash out of shape to healthy living. It's a whole new set of problems to deal with. So from your experience of kind of having been a have and a have not, Yes. And combining that with all of the research that you do in obesity, what advice would you give to our listeners? Like, what are the three main things that if you could tell them and someone's struggling out there to lose weight, what are the three most important things? Eat, sleep, and recover. And so what I mean by that is this. Those three things are all you really need. And when you look at that static program, I, you probably are not going to be able to do that, right? And that's not my opinion. That's the literature bearing this out. We start these things, and we get to three months, six months, 12 months, and the attrition rate is so high, 90 95%. So you're probably not going to be able to do that. But if you carry these three things with you, eat, sleep, and recover, you're going to have a new experience. So eating we talked about, right? The purpose of eating for us now 
is to fuel our reorganization, to change our exercise capacity, eat so that you can essentially get in good enough shape to burn enough calories that it's going to matter. Sleep. What I mean by sleep is rest. Really sleep is, is part of it for sure. We have to get at least an average of seven to eight hours of sleep per night on average over a week, especially if you're embarking on new exercise. But also part of sleep is purely to rest. Pay attention to this time when you're eating to fuel your reorganization that you also need to rest to fuel your reorganization. It's that time after your workout. It's that invisible time on a static program when you're eating clean and resting that your body will reorganize itself. And then the last one is recover. And we talked a lot about that. So recovery can be active, eating the way we talked about, active recovery, things like muscle massage or foam rollers or um, um, hot tubs, things that actively uh, help us recover. And then passive recovery, which is probably the most important one that we've talked about earlier, paying attention to your body signals uh, as to when you're ready to go back and work out again, with your primary goal being getting to that critical point of exercise capacity where all of this will become easier. So then you're not crossing over anymore, right? We talked about how hard it is to cross over and how it's not that hard to maintain. Once you cross over that critical point, you can dispense with all these difficulties that are related to crossing over. So eat, sleep, recover. Eat, sleep, eat, recover. Sleep, yes, ma'am. Eat, sleep, recover. Okay. <laughs> that, that's wonderful. And I want to go back to your research. You had mentioned that you are presenting your research findings from freezing the, one of the nerves in the body that is instrumental in sensing hunger. Um, can you explain that a little bit more for our listeners? That you know, you mentioned it's one pathway. There are many other pathways, but how does that work? I mean, that's such a groundbreaking way to manage hunger. So I'm so glad you asked about that. So the driving force behind that is really the resistance that I faced with the theory that you and I just talked about. I've been able to explain that to, to so many people only to be faced or only to be responded to with, the, with this. Oh, come on. They all just need to stop feeding themselves cheeseburgers, right? And it becomes an amazing frustration, the, the culture of fat shaming and, and so forth when people aren't, aren't able. And so part of the driving force behind this was we've got to find a way to really prove that this is true, right? If this is truly a, a, what we as doctors call super tentorial issue, if this is really uh, an issue that's in the mind, then if I make a change to the body, it shouldn't matter. On the flip side, if we're right, if what we're saying is right, that the body is backlashing and that's what's stopping us, then why not do something medically to attenuate that backlash? And then patients will do well, but also will be able to support our position. And so what we did specifically was this. In interventional radiology, we use advanced imaging uh, CT guidance, MRI guidance, and sometimes fluoroscopy and ultrasound to place needles into the body for various reasons. We treat trauma, we treat cancer, we do diagnostic work. In this setting, we can use that same skill set to advance a needle to the nerve that carries the hunger signal from an empty stomach to the brain. And we can freeze that nerve, which shuts down its signaling pathway. Now, if we go back to our theory and say when people embark on calorie restriction, their body rebels. Well, if we've blocked that signal, it should be easier, and it's turning out that it is. You know, what's really profound about this is both and I read the medical literature, and there's ongoing debate. Is obesity a choice? Is it a disease? Um, is it genetic, et cetera? And, and really isolating this 
nerve and treating it this way is approaching it as a disease. How would you answer that? Disease, choice, genetics, environment? Well, it's definitely not a choice, right? No one would choose that. People aren't choosing uh, along the way to to come to us so we can treat their care. Well, they're coming to us, but they're not choosing to have cancer. They're not choosing to have obesity. So definitely not a choice. And in fact, I think even the consideration that obesity may be a choice is what fuels all of the fat shaming that we see in 2018. And so I would discourage anyone from thinking that uh, obesity is is a conscious choice. And I think that we've shown, and, and not only through that pathway, there are other interventional radiologists, uh, Cliff Weiss, for example, at Johns Hopkins, who has taken a different approach, who does a transarterial procedure in that he blocks the blood vessels to the cells that produce the hunger hormone, right? So this is just another way at, at coming to the body and decreasing the hunger hormone response to calorie restriction. And he's finding the same thing. So definitely not a choice. I think we need to treat this as a disease. We need to treat these patients as if they were our spouses or brothers or friends and help them. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of genetic-based research that also supports what you're saying, that there are susceptibility genes that really help classify obesity as a disease. And, and that changes our approach. It changes research. It changes how we manage people. So I think that's such a, a key point. Let me wrap up by asking you, for people who want to work towards you know, eat, sleep, recovery, follow a plan, like what are good resources? Where should they get more information? Well, we'd certainly like them to come to our website, uh, which is drpologo.com or thecatchingpoint.com. Also, uh, we've written a book that will be out soon. It will be a great resource for folks. But beyond that, I think that tertiary care centers like yours uh, are doing so much work to provide evidence-based information for the public that if I could advise the public in seeking out information on how to live healthy, I would advise them to stay with experts like Dr. Berquist or your, uh, your colleagues at academic tertiary care centers whose motivations are not financial but rather to help human beings. Uh, yes, definitely. And, and as you get more out regarding the book and more information, um, let us know so we can share that with our listeners. I want to thank you for joining us. This has been such a great discussion. I appreciate you sharing everything that you know from your research um, with all of us. So um, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for all that you do. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by the Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness Center at Emory. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, This material is copyrighted by Emory University.